Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans chapter 8. It's been a long time since we said that. Uh, Eight weeks exactly since we were in the book of Romans. I suppose uh, we couldn't be picking up this study at a better place uh, than in chapter 8. I was reading uh, a lot of commentaries this week, and one writer kind of described what we're going to experience in chapter 8 this way. He said, now, the scriptures are a redemptive story. Genesis to Revelation is the story of God come for man's problems. So he describes it like a gold ring. The scripture, redemption, is a gold ring. And he described Romans... uh, as the diamond on the ring, because it's the pivotal book in all the scriptures that talk about our problem and God's provision for our problem. It's a wonderful book, and we've been telling you that from the very beginning. But he describes chapter 8 as the sparkle in the diamond on the ring. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun in chapter 8, because chapter 8 says more than you ever dreamed possible from God's heart to us as sinners. And there's just a couple of things we're going to experience here. One is chapter 8 is a Holy Spirit chapter. Uh, The Holy Spirit is mentioned. His work and provision in believers' lives is mentioned here in this chapter more than any other chapter in Scripture. Nineteen times it's mentioned. And you know the, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? He is the power Uh, of God to sinners. It transforms our lives and secures us forever. And so that's what we're going to experience in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is also special because it it reveals to us our assurance of salvation and the victory we have in Christ Jesus. One writer describes kind of a Three pictures of of chapter 8. We start verse 1 with this wonderful, amazing sentence that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So we start with no condemnation. We finish the chapter with no separation, and in the middle for believers is no defeat. So if you want to just take one chapter with you everywhere you go in your life, chapter 8 would be the one I suggest. It is a powerful one, a victory and provision from God to us. Chapter 8 is also the summation of everything we've been going through. So if you've been here for the last six or seven months as we've journeyed through the first seven chapters of of Romans, here's what you've experienced. Uh, We experienced the bad news, chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 3, that sin is really that bad. And everyone has that problem. And it's far worse than we ever feared. And then right there in the middle of chapter 3, this wonderful, but God... But God deals with our inabilities and our sins and our failures, and he provides a righteousness not of our own. He gives us his righteousness, right? And then we get to chapter 5, and we see how it happens by faith. And he uses Abraham as an example. And we see this wonderful, wonderful, unbelievable story that sinners who can't provide for themselves, just simply receiving by faith what Jesus has provided for them, we go free, free. We also saw in chapter 6 that now we're dead to sin and alive to Christ and his righteousness. Slaves to righteousness is what Paul talks about. We also saw in the beginning of chapter 7 that we're released from the law. Now to a bunch of Hebrews who thought that if I did these things or didn't do these things, God would take note, right? Paul deals with that legalistic heart of every person and says, you can't climb a ladder to God. It's, a, it's, a, it's apart from the law. We're released from the law. And in chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, we saw the law and its role, that the law does one predominant thing to us. It wrecks us. Because it exposes us as people who can't. It produces in us sin, Paul says. And so um, that is the totality of what we've seen in a snapshot of Romans in chapter 8. Picks all those themes back up and, and retells the story. So chapter 8, I'm not trying to overplay it. It is, it is by far the most pivotal chapter I know of in the scriptures. And the first sentence of chapter 8 is the greatest sentence I've ever heard. So um, 
We need to get a running start at chapter 8, okay? So we're going to back up to chapter 7, verse 15, to kind of get thematically what Paul is trying to say. And there's a reason for that, and that is because many uh, writers... Theologians have a problem with the chapter separation at chapter 8. And, and, and here's what Stedman, Ray Stedman says about this break and why it kind of messes up our mind in understanding Paul's thought. Because here's what Stedman says. There is absolutely no question but that chapter 8 ought to open with the word but. It is a contrast that shows the way out of struggle of chapter 7. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only reason this verse does not open with but is because some clown put a big 8 at the beginning, and it's thrown off translators for, for forever. And you're going to see why this is really important, because you can read the end of chapter 7 somewhat kind of isolated, and it's a true statement, but you might leave a little bit like, oh, well, chapter 8, verse 1 gives you the so what to that. So let me back up to verse 15. Let's read it together. If you don't have the scriptures, we have it up on the screen for you today. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do, not, I do what I do not want, I agree that with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find this law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray together. God, these are the most powerful words um, any person could hear. God, this is probably um, the clearest depiction of how much you love us and how permanent this relationship is. God, I confess uh, my inabilities to communicate it, so we're asking for your spirit to do it. God, I I pray that you intervene for us and press upon us these truths uh, so deeply that uh, we can't help ourselves but to celebrate you and your gospel. I also know, God, that there's going to be some people here today who resist this, who think that somehow it's not enough. God, I just pray. I pray that you would allow them to see their need to such a degree that the only place they look is to Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. A real simple outline today, and it has to have verses 15 to the end of chapter 7 to make sense according to what Paul is saying here. Here's the first truth, and it's a reminder because Jake dealt with this a couple of, couple of weeks ago, actually eight weeks ago. Here's the first truth. For all Christians, all Christians struggle. Now, I don't know if you're here today and you find that offensive. 
I know this, that I run into people who do, who think that somehow Christians shouldn't. Like that what the gospel does is not only, not only save you, but over a little bit of time, not too much time, mind you, just over a little bit of time, you have, ought to have some of these problems, these seriously jacked up issues in your life sorted out. Because if you don't, you've lost your hope. Now, I'm going to confront that today, and I will do it with confidence, because I'm absolutely certain I believe what the gospel and the scriptures teach, that it is apart from any work, so you do not boast. God gets the glory from, from our life. He extends grace to us by faith, and that's the only thing that settles it with God and us, so we're going to go through that journey together. But if you notice the words that Paul used in chapter 7, I don't do what I want to do. In fact, the things that I want to try to do, I can't pull off, right? I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Now tell me, that doesn't sound familiar to you, okay? Here's how God wins the argument of grace. All he has to do is show you you, because you can't. You might wake up, this might be your issue, you might have an issue with anger, and you might set yourself to, to obeying God today and go, you know, today, today is going to be a day of peace, and I'm not going to lose it today. You can't even make it to lunch. Somebody cuts you off, and you see it boiling up inside of you, right? God puts in your life difficult people to love, right? And you say, well, God, I, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to extend your hand and your love to people. But all these people do is give you way more reasons to hate them than to love them. Because we do hate better than love. And you look at your own life. If you're just honest about your secrets and your problems and the things that you deal with, and you know you've confessed them, and you know you've called them what they are, you know they're there, and you might be better than you used to be, but they never quite go totally away. Right? This passage this passage tells us why, and tells us why it's so common to our experience. I believe Romans 7 is Paul talking about his own life. I would think that if you're going to talk about a guy who could muster the strength to tie down his issues, it might be a Pharisaical Jew who, who trusts in Christ. I not only have discipline and duty and law, now I got Jesus and grace. If anybody could manage the problem of sin and perpetual struggle, maybe Paul could say, I I've got that wired too. But Paul talks about his life, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? And his only answer is Jesus. There's a, there's a struggle there. And I believe and I know, whether you believe it or not, I don't care. I know you struggle too. I just had a conversation with a lady who really felt like she was the exception to this rule. And I kept going, Really? Really? Like, I just, this totally misses me. Like, you think that you don't have a problem? You don't think you have a propensity to a problem? You don't think you're wired a certain way to feel safety and control and peace by doing this or don't doing that? You don't feel like you have that in you? Paul's just simply describing his own spiritual life. I know what God requires. I can't do it. I can't, I can't pull that off. And Paul is talking about this struggle. Now, this is not all that Paul says. And when, in chapter 8, we're going to pick this apart and see where victory comes from the, for the church. But in order to get his flow of thought here, let's just spend some time looking at this war that he's suggesting. The fight between the flesh and the spirit. This is why you can't pull it off. Because the spirit of God, this transformed heart of you, is wrapped in this body of flesh. And they're at conflict with each other all the time. So the flesh simply, this is my definition, it's the proud, people-pleasing, self-centered idol factory that resides in every person I've ever met, okay? Whether you call it something else or not, that's in essence what it is. That's the flesh. The spirit that Paul is referring to, the work that God has done in our life, is made alive by God through faith in Jesus. 
and it finds its deepest satisfaction in Christ, and it wants to do what God wants to do. Who doesn't believe that if you're a believer? That's a depiction of my heart, too. Both of them are. And that's why Paul says it's a daily war that I can't win. We struggle between what we know and what we do. We struggle between kingdom affections and worldly affections all the time. We uh, wrestle with selfishness or love, okay? How is this relationship going to work for me? How is it going to deliver for me? And so we wrestle with those two things. We wrestle between pride and humility because we know humility is the heart of Christ, and yet we don't want to look too bad. We don't want to come in second. We struggle with defensiveness or biblical repentance. Like, I want to be the victim. I don't want to be guilty. I don't want to be the perpetrator. So I color my sins, and I call them something that they're not, and so that I can feel better about it. But God simply says, you're guilty. Repent. I provided for you, and we struggle with that. We struggle between love and lust and generosity and greed, and you just can keep going on and on and on. The things that God requires, I come up here at best. And Paul's simply describing the reality of what it's like to live as a Christian who has a God-authored heart wrapped in this flesh that doesn't want anything to do with what God has said. They're at war with each other because I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to come in second. I want what I want in my flesh, but then my head's going... I love Jesus. I don't want anything else but the kingdom. I want to give it all up. I want to just serve him. I want to do all those things with the purest motives, selflessly, open-handedly. I don't need recognition that operates out of the gospel. And he's simply describing what it's like to be Christian. So if you're sitting here today and you, uh, you identify with the struggle, at least you're being honest. If you don't struggle, then I suggest you take a second look because you're self-deceived. Everyone struggles. That's the reality of being a Christian. It's not a struggle unless there isn't a spirit of God fighting with the flesh. It's not called a struggle then. It's easy. Do what you want. So here's why, here's why this truth of chapter 7 that Jake dealt with eight weeks ago is so important to connect to the first four verses of chapter 8. And this is the second truth I want you to see. Not only are, do all Christians struggle, but watch this. This is the most amazing truth I ever heard. Verse 1, our struggle is without condemnation. Church, let's smile together. That's great news. Our struggle is without God's judgment. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, for the original writers of the New Testament, sentence structure is really important to emphasize the, uh, the, the weight of what they're trying to say. And so in the original language, the first word that Paul brings in response to the struggle isn't there, and it's not therefore. The first word in the structure to emphasize how we respond to the struggle is the word no. And it's the most emphatic, strongest no that they have in the Greek language. It basically is saying to the struggle that would tell me that I'm defeated or tell me that I don't belong to him sometimes, here's what Paul says, no. Absolutely not under any circumstances are you under condemnation ever again because of Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what the scriptures say. Not even one. Never is his point. Now, like many things, maybe looking at this thing in reverse helps us see more what it is by saying what it isn't. So let me just give you a couple of things that he is not saying here. This, is not, this does not mean that there is now no, um, no cause for condemnation. 
Paul is not suggesting that you, God looks at you like totally differently because there's no reason to condemn you because we've already learned if you've been through Romans that there's plenty of reasons to condemn us. Scriptures say that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that not true? No matter what you struggle with, I mean, you could have the kind of struggles that people would put you in jail for, you know, the kind that everyone says is evil. Or you can have the kind of struggle that people would say, oh, that's just like mine. You make me feel comfortable. Like, that's the acceptable evil that we all accept. It doesn't matter which evil you have. Here, here's the reality of it. We're all guilty. And the, the condemnation should be ours because of our guilt. Romans 2, Paul told us this, because of our hard and stubborn heart, God is storing up wrath against us, right? So there's a problem bigger than just our failure. We are at war with the sovereign God. Because of a hard and stubborn heart, we don't want his authority in our life. And so God is storing up wrath, right? Just wrath against sin. He has to, otherwise he's not God and he's not holy. Romans 6, here's the conclusion. Wages of sin is what? problem's pretty big. It's not, that, it's not that we don't deserve condemnation. We deserve it, don't we? Every one of us deserves it. We all are under that truth. But here's another thing that this condemnation isn't. It doesn't mean that there's no failure for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not what Paul says here. He says no condemnation. Romans 7, talking of himself, he says, when I want to do right, evil's right there with me. That's the, tr- the reality. He calls himself a wretched man, this writer of the New Testament. So he's clearly not saying that there's no failure because Paul's confessed his failures. Here's what no condemnation means. No coming judgment. No punishment. No payback. No guilt whatsoever. There is uh, uh, no accusations that stick anymore. You're found innocent in Christ Jesus. I'm waiting for you to go, yeah, absolutely, amen, bring it home, something. Is that not good news? No condemnation means God isn't going to wake up and go, oh, yeah, you're a knucklehead. You deserve this. And, and there's a clear reason why. It's because Christ was condemned for us. It's not that God just looked at our sin and go, you know, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. And, and never mind, we'll get you next time. God has to, because he's holy, deal with sin. He condemns sin by his character. So it's either us or a substitute. Jesus took the condemnation, all of it, every drop of it, every single thing you've ever thought about doing, everything you have done, all the secrets that you keep and everything you have yet to invent, Jesus was condemned for it. Completely and totally. Let let me remind you of this truth. Go back to chapter 3 of Romans. This is powerful stuff, and there's words in here we don't typically use, but... They're biblical, and we need, to, we need to get our head around them. But chapter 3, picking up in verse 23, the verse that we're all familiar with, here's what Paul says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation simply is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. So God is storing up a right wrath for all of our sin. Everything we have done, everything we are doing, everything we will do for every person who claims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is storing up a deserved wrath, okay? God came to this earth to, to, to deal with and take on full brunt of his own wrath. Now watch this. God died for God. 
It's mind-blowing. God says, I have a standard. You can't keep it. I have a condemnation, a rightful judgment of sin that you can't survive. I'm coming to take it for you. And God remains holy and pure and right and honest, and he does what he says he's going to do, and he pours out his wrath on Jesus, and he gets condemned. So therefore, Paul can say, therefore, there is now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not that God forgot about it. He didn't. He worked up all the wrath a holy God could work up, and he poured it out on our Savior. That's why we can say there's no condemnation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? That's what Jesus did for us. Do you realize what this means? Do you really realize what this means? In the context of Paul's argument, do you realize that you can stumble and fall? You can fail a thousand times over. You can really struggle with problems and weaknesses, and there will never, ever, 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 ever be judgment coming from God. That's why we sing. That's why we're here. It's the only truth in the world like it. Every other religious system is a ladder to try to work yourself out of your problem. They all fall short. This is the only truth in the world that describes how bad it is and yet how good God is to deliver us from, right? That's the truth that we believe. Let, let me take the time to mention one other condemnation, and uh, I'm implying it from the text, but it's certainly in our world, in our culture. Not only does faith in Christ deal with God's condemnation, rightful condemnation of our sin, but the reality of faith in Christ deals with our own condemnation of our own lives. I, I can't tell you how crippled our world is. You probably know that. And it seems to me how crippled the church is sometimes um, dealing with self-condemnation. Like I can say Jesus covers you and we can sing Jesus paid it all and you'll raise your hands and you'll say amen and then you walk out of here dealing with some perpetual failure and you'll hit the skids and your head will go down and you deal with discouragement and depression and guilt feelings. I want you to understand something, church. God doesn't do guilt. And if God doesn't do guilt, you tell me where it's coming. See, here's what Satan can't do. He can't show up with God and say, hey, by the way, these people are really perpetual strugglers. They're knuckleheads. You should not commit to them. You should not follow through. God, Satan can't change God's stance on us. So what does he do? He comes after us, suggesting somehow that what God has provided through Christ isn't quite enough. It can't be that good. We can't be made totally righteous before God. Can we by faith? Really? Doesn't God wake up tomorrow and see my struggle again? Doesn't he see it that way? Doesn't he see my life like that, like a father would see his child? No, he doesn't. So Satan goes after us, suggesting that it can't be true, and so we walk around condemning ourselves as if somehow we could be harder on our sin than God was. I want you to know something that's blasphemy. God's way more serious about sin than you'll ever be. Way more. So this guilt-ridden, self-defeated, woe-is-me attitude has no place in the Christian heart, not whatsoever. Now, I'm not saying be flippant about your sin. I'm not saying enjoy your sin. I'm not saying skippity-doo-dah through your sin. I'm just suggesting when sin tries to tell you that this is possibly up for grabs, that Jesus is somehow tired of your act, this self-defeated, self-condemning kind of lifestyle that wants to hang out in depression and not experience the joy of salvation in Christ, that thing is not biblical and it's not Christian. So... If 
if this is true, there is absolutely no condemnation. And if God doesn't condemn us, who are you to keep condemning yourself? Have you got a bigger standard than God's holiness? I don't think so. Now, I want you to see what this really means. If we unpack that truth, there's some power here. It means this, that God will never, ever reject you. I don't care what you're dealing with. Uh, probably the most familiar story, uh, referring to the character of God when it comes to struggling people, might be the prodigal son in Luke. The prodigal son was a, it's a story that Jesus tells to describe the father's heart. Here's a son who comes to his father and suggests that he wants his inheritance, was, it was, which was equivalent to saying, I want you dead because I'd rather just have your money. And so the father complies and gives him his inheritance, and the son goes off to the big city, and he squanders it in crazy, wild living, right? He has a party life. He runs out of money, and he's now trying to take care of himself by working for a farmer in a pig farm, and he's in a pigsty, and he is looking at the pig food going, boy, that looks good. And then he comes to his senses, the text says, and he considers his father, and he goes, man, my dad was a good dad. And it would be far better to be a servant in his household than here. So I, I'm going to go home. Not, not as a son anymore. I'm going to go back and see if he'll hire me as a servant. So he's on the road, and he's on his way back to the father's house. Now, the father is looking out the window, sees his son coming, and starts on a dead run for his kid. And the kid works up the speech he's probably been preparing for the last, you know, 10 miles of the hike. And he gets ready to tell his dad, hey, I want to be a servant. I screwed up. I blew it. And the father shuts him up. He says, you were lost. Now you're found. You're my kid. Here's the ring. Here's the, here's the coat that symbolizes our relationship. You're never rejected. Now, of all the pictures that God could use through his son to tell us about how God receives us who fail, well, that's a poignant one. If you ever wander, if you ever do something stupid, if you ever blow it and squander everything, remember, God doesn't reject you. He can't reject you. That's not the Father's heart if he sees you through Christ. Remember, he already knows everything. He's not surprised by what you do or what you struggle with. He loves you, according to Scripture, with an everlasting love. I know this is hard to understand because nobody here has that. We say it, like I really love my kid, and, and I suppose on, the, on this side of heaven, that might be the closest version of this type of love, but it still falls way short. If your kid said, I want you dead and I want your money, you might change how you feel about your kid, but the Father God doesn't. He'll never reject us. It also means that he's not angry with you when you struggle. Uh, some word pictures of God and us work, you know, when we compare and contrast, you know, the wording, using the word father to describe his heart for us. And I think sometimes we can get in that and figure some of that out. But, but this is where it falls down. Because uh, we are shocked and surprised and disappointed and upset when somebody fails us intentionally. We react with anger. He doesn't. And if you struggle with this truth, that you see God as this ogre who's angry with your life, then you haven't seen or understood how God sees you clearly enough yet. It's a possibility that you're not even a believer. Because you need to understand something. The only way God would not get angry and the only way God would not reject you, the only way God would continue to accept you in spite of all your struggles is because he doesn't see you without Jesus. He sees you covered 
in the righteous robes of Christ. The only way any of us stands is that he doesn't judge us based on our own merit. He judges us based on our Savior's merit. And as far as God's concerned, Jesus was everything. God to his son, he obeyed in all ways without sin. So Jesus was perfect for us. And God doesn't get angry with our failures, just the opposite. And you, some of you can preach this message. He reaches down with grace to pull us out of them. That's what God does to our failures. It means that God will never punish us because he punished Jesus for us. Now, the scriptures talk about discipline. God disciplines those he loves, but it's not punitive. It's instructive. It's like helping your kid learn that playing in the street will kill you. God sometimes disciplines his people to give them the best that he has to offer, but he never punishes his children. And there's one reason, because he punished Christ for us. Jesus said it was finished. God the Son said it's over. Whatever needed to happen, happened with my death, right? Amen? So it's also, it also means this, that we're safe with God forever. In other words, once saved, always saved. Jesus said, speaking of eternal life, these are my sheep and no one, no one, John 10, no one will snatch them from my hand. And there's one reason, because Jesus did pay it all. Nothing else needs to happen. So those are two truths for every Christian. We all struggle, right? And there's no condemnation for people who struggle. Here's the third truth, and we're done this morning. God made a way for victory in the middle of our struggles. Let me go back and read chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, just to remind us of what Paul is saying here. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the, to the Spirit. God made a way for victory here. Some of us have taken the term victory and, and maybe not articulated it out loud, but in our minds think of victory in the wrong way. We think of victory as being completely overcoming a particular, particular issue in our life. Victory biblically is, is receiving what Jesus has done for us by faith. That's the ultimate victory, right? It is also seen in our life by this, this attitude of brokenness and repentance in God's people. So when they fall, they call it what God calls. They repent of their sin and they press forward in their life. That's the, that's the attitude of, of, of victory that the scriptures talk about. But Paul tells us how it's possible. Now, I want you to see this. This is just the beginning of what we're going to deal with in the next couple of weeks in the end of, of chapter 8. Um, but Paul now talks about how it's even possible that we can know victory. If we're all perpetual strugglers, how is this going to happen? And it starts with this, realizing that the spirit of life, according to Paul, has set us free. Realizing that the spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit, has set us truly, truly free. You notice uh, there's two phrases he uses. Um, one is the phrase of the spirit of life, and the other one is the spirit of, the spirit of, of the flesh and, and of sin. The spirit of flesh and sin, you guys are very familiar with. You could write papers on this. This is, this is our perpetual wanderings. We were born in this. This is where the law likes to spur us. So when God says do and don't do, because of us being born into that sin and death, this is what we do with law. No, I'm not doing it. It can't produce anything in us. All the law does is expose us as rebels. That's all it was meant to do is expose us as people who can't do it. It was never meant to solve the problem for sin. 
And so it exposes us as people who are stuck in sin, chained to sin, imprisoned to sin, slaves to it, incapable of pleasing God. No matter what we say, no matter how hard we try, you can wake up one morning going, today I'm doing this. And you can't do it. We're broken this way. That's the law of sin and death. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he opens our eyes to see and understand and perceive the truth. The Bible says when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, we looked at the truth of God and his gospel and thought it foolish. And that's stupid. But when God liberates us and opens our hearts and our minds to the truth, it becomes the power of God. There is something there that transforms God's people. And Paul talks about it in this idea of being freed from that one law to another. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and frees us from the bondage of sin, and he takes up residence in in our life. And that means this, for the first time in your life, you can actually please God. Now, you can focus on religious activities before you confess Jesus alone for your salvation. But the Bible says your righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to God if you're going alone. The only thing that can please God is what Christ has already done. And if you present what Christ has already done, God is pleased. You see? That's the reality of how this works. So the first thing you can do after coming to Christ by faith is you can please God. You can choose today to worship, where worship used to be foolish. You can choose today to give, where giving before was foolish because you were a hoarder, because that's all you could do. You were enslaved to sin, and on and on it goes, right? You can choose today to give yourself away and love people who really have no capacity to love you in return because you know you're loving Jesus by loving them. That was foolishness before. They're not in perfection, but there are these little things that come out of our life when the spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death, right? That's what Paul is talking about. He set us free from the permanent, constant defeat of sin because we don't have to go on and on and on with it. He set us free from indifference to it. I know this, that I can sin. I can sin with the best of them. I just don't sleep well. I toss and I turn and I go, what did I do? And God, I'm so sorry, and I grieve, and I get up, and I hit my knees, and I pray, and I cry. That's God. That's not flesh. That's not me trying to fix my problem by some kind of word statement. This is God in his love pressing on me. You understand? You felt that before? Of course you have. That is freedom. God won't let you go untethered, destroying yourself or other people. God brings about repentance in our life. There's another reason how we can know victory that Paul gives us. This is a powerful phrase. It's at the beginning of verse 3. Do you see it? For God has done. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here's Here's what we learn. You can give me as many laws as you've got. You can give me the Old Testament and I can walk around with the Ten Commandments in my pocket. I can't do it. God could provide all those specific laws, and I can't pull those off either. Because I have no ability to fix my problem, God did it for me. Amen? That's what Paul says here. He did it by coming in the flesh and entering into this mess with us and subjecting himself to all the sickness and sin and twisted ways of the world. He did it by providing himself an atoning sacrifice for sinners who who were so messed up. There was no other solution. Ray Stedman said it this way, so listen very carefully. In that body of flesh without sin, he became sin, speaking of Jesus. He was offered as an offering for sin. In the mystery of the cross, which we can never, never understand no matter how long we live, somehow 
the Lord Jesus at the hour of darkness gathered up all the sins of the world, all the terrible, evil, foul, awful injustice, crime and misery that we've seen throughout the history of the world from every person and gathered it to himself and brought it to an end by dying. The good news is that somehow by faith in him, we get involved in that death. It's what Romans 6 verse 6 says. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is the way the Lord did it. He has tied us to himself as a risen, ascended Lord, and that's who we are from now on. This is not just for a few Christians who've gone beyond all the rest and have some special experience. All Christians are this way. If you are a Christian at all, this is who you are. It's always who you are. To let yourself believe anything else is to delude yourself. To believe your feelings about yourself at any moment of evil or sin is to fool yourself. This is who you are. By the gift of God, without earning it or without even deserving it, you're righteous in his sight, just like Jesus is righteous. You're righteous with the righteousness of God. The very righteousness which the law demands is fulfilled in us the minute we believe what God has done about our evil and trust him for it. Amen? That's what happens for us. He provides what he demands. God provides for us everything that we need. See, this is what God did. He saw the obedience of his son and declared that everyone, everyone who believes gets credit for it. He imputes it to us. These are the two words that Paul uses in verses three, or phrases that Paul uses in verses three and four to describe that. If you notice in in verse three, he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. When Jesus came, he died for sin. He bore the weight of sin. He took all the condemnation of God against sin. Jesus condemned sin. And then he did this in verse 4. It says this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus not only condemned sin, he fulfilled the requirements God expected. What's left, church? What else do you need to do? That's why this is an an entirely faith proposition, because if God judged sin perfectly and completely and then provides for us a righteousness that he expects, God has done what we could not do. If he does that, then you understand why it requires faith to implement it in your life. This wonderful cosmic transaction of my sin being completely satisfied in Jesus' death and Jesus' satisfactory life of righteousness completely transferred to my life is the only hope any sinner ever had because you can't be good enough. You can't be strong enough. You can't obey enough. You can't fix it on your own. God's requirement, First Peter, is holiness and perfection, absolute perfection. And God's not being an ogre and he's not being too tough. He's God. He can't lay down his holiness. He can't compromise it for us. And so what does he do? He delivers it for us. God, the Son, dies for the standard of God and the wrath of God that was against our sin, and he provides us a righteousness simply by faith. Do you believe it? Do you receive it? Do you accept it? Do you want it? Absolutely. It's ours. My sin to Jesus, his righteousness to me. And so for the first time, first time ever, This word that Paul uses, free, that's really what it means, free. 
free from performance or effort or insecurity or depression or wondering if it's true, wondering if God's going to change his mind. I don't have that insecurity anymore because it's true what Jesus did. John Bunyan wrote a poem, a short little poem that implies this. Listen to it. Do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's Jesus. Jesus says, I want you holy. I know you can't do it. Let me give it to you. Let me give it to you. You're as holy as, as, as you need to be, as holy as, as Jesus is. And if you get that, if you get that God supplies what he demands, then you understand what we're going to learn here in the next couple of weeks, that God also provides the victory to see us overcome sins in our life and struggles in our life and bitterness in our life and depressions in our life. It's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if I were to pick out a word for verse, I, w- I would pick out a phrase in verse 1, no condemnation. Verse 2, there is total freedom. Verse 3, there is power in the Holy Spirit. And verse 4, there is righteousness for his people. You understand when we talk about Romans and specifically Romans 8, you got the sparkle of the diamond of the ring of redemption of God. That's why it's so important to us. This is the totality of what it is to be a believer, to be a sinner covered by God's grace. Amen? That's the truth. So let me leave you with a couple of so what's this morning. I've said them already, but I want to emphasize them again. There is no condemnation, so you're eternally secure. Wrap your arms around that. God's not going to change his mind. You can't lose your salvation. God already judged your sin. Jesus said it's finished, and he wasn't kidding. Here's the second thing I want you to remember today. You really are truly free. You're not slaves anymore. Um, God isn't watching your life with a clipboard checking boxes to see if you merit anything or if you qualify. You are loved completely and unconditionally. Here's the third thing. You are already positionally perfect and holy. I didn't say that. Jesus did. You're already as holy as you can possibly be. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. He has already credited you all that Jesus has done. Nothing else needs to be added. Amen? Do you understand why, why this phrase, no condemnation, is so powerful for us? Because if you leave here today even wondering at all if there is things you can do or should do or things that you have done of yet to do that would somehow compromise this, then there is no gospel, there is no God. Jesus is not our Savior and we're all on our own. But this is true. It's the only thing in the world like it. It describes the problem clearly. Everything it says about our sin, I see in my life and the world around me. It's right about that. And it's also right about God's solution, who is Christ, who gives himself a ransom for sinners like us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this story. I thank you for the powerful, powerful words that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray for the saints in this room. Let it sink deep today. God, I pray that we would just walk out of here with silly, stupid smiles on our face because we can't believe how true that is. And if there are those in this room who would say of themselves they don't know Christ, I pray that this story would so blow their mind, they would ask, how can they know him? God, we say thank you today. We worship you today. We honor you today for the the righteousness of Christ that you imputed to us by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.